0: Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to uh, introduce our special guest to you in just one second. Uh, But before doing that, I want to say thank you to uh, our uh, patron supporters. Thanks so much for your support. Uh, You too can become a patron supporter by following the Patreon link in the description below and just going over there and uh, checking that out. you With that, you get uh, access to the bonus segment uh, with five more minutes with whoever my guest is that week, and so you get access to all of those. So be sure and do that if you uh, like what you see and want to support the show. Uh, but now I want to bring in my special guest. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Josh Rasmussen. Dr. Josh, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I'm wonderful. Thank you.
0: Yes, it's uh, excellent to have you on. Uh, as we were talking beforehand, I'm familiar with uh, your work, your books, as well as uh, the stuff you do online. I've seen you a number of time, uh, number of times on uh, Capturing Christianity over there with Cameron Bertuzzi and uh, really, really like listening to you. And so I'm very excited to have you on.
1: Thanks. I'm really excited to be with you. We'll see how this conversation goes. You know, it's always fun talking about philosophy. So
0: yes, it definitely is. And uh, I always forget to do this. So I want to do this real quick. If you have questions, you can submit them in the live chat. Uh, tag at help me believe that'll help me see it. Of course, if you do a super chat, I'll definitely see it that way, and, and we'll address the super chats first. Uh, but tag at help me believe, and pref- preferably make your questions for Dr. Josh. But if you want to ask me something, I guess you're more than welcome to. Uh, but before we uh, get to the Q and A, let's get to the interview, Dr. Josh. I, I thought it would be um, helpful if you gave a brief introduction of yourself for those who uh, may not be familiar with who you are.
1: Yeah, so I teach philosophy at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, My passion is to understand things, anything, money, relationships. (laughs) But my understanding, my interest takes me into sort of fundamental principles. And so in my academic work, I'm trying to find out, like, what are the fundamental principles of existence and minds? Those are kind of my two main areas, existence and minds. Um, but in conversations, like with my wife, we'll also talk about like, what are the fundamental principles of relationships, of purpose, of money, of time management? So I've noticed that about myself, uh, that I just really love to seek a greater understanding. And there's really no end to that. So that's who I am, a philosopher. Yes,
0: thank you uh, so much for the introduction there. Sorry, I'm trying to do some things over here on the technical side of things. There we go. Okay. Uh, so that's interesting that, uh, so your your wife is also interested in philosophy or apologetics, that sort of stuff?
1: She's very, she's got a similar interest to uh, sort of understand things. Yeah. And I was telling her the other day, it sounds like you like to think on the edges yeah. of things. She said, yeah, she's always kind of like exploring on the edges, kind of breaking the boundaries. And it's kind of interesting because in apologetic culture, it's kind of aimed a little bit more towards kind of helping somebody to see maybe an existing understanding, or maybe there's kind of an emphasis on, on a defense. And so there's sort of an interesting relationship, I think, between the philosophers and the, the apologists that could even have a kind of a point of tension because the philosophers and the scientists too, you know, we're interested in kind of exploring. Our gratification comes from breaking down existing paradigms and discovering new ones. Okay. So, But I do think that um, people can work together by... Discovering things and then helping other people see what's been discovered. Wow. But yeah, so she's she's very much with me on this Wow, uh, in fact, we even yeah. recently wrote a book together on that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so and, uh, and by the way yeah. to
0: the audience you can in the description there'll be links. There are links to uh, uh, Dr. Rasmussen's uh, website as well as his books on Amazon. So uh, be sure and check those out. But uh, yeah, that's very interesting um, so tell me how did you Um, become a Christian in the first place and then also kind of how did you get interested in philosophy
1: so my family uh, is my dad is actually a a pastor church and so Christianity was kind of in the background for me Um, uh, I you know sort of one of those things where it's kind of part of the culture and in my family my dad and uh, my community emphasized thinking and exploring and so I never felt kind of barred from exploring. There wasn't sort of this situation where I had questions and then somebody said, oh, you just have to have faith. In fact, I remember the first time I read through the entire Bible, page page after page, I was like, I think, 15. And I had questions on different parts of the Bible. And I would put a circle on the top of the page and underline my question. And like basically like every three pages or so, like I had questions for my dad. <laughs> and so... I remember one day I saying, okay dad, I've got some questions for you. And I started going through like question after question after question. And he was able to answer like about 80% of the questions just right off the top, like very satisfying answers. Um, and then he gave me a commentary that helped answer another 10%. And that left another 10% of questions for me to think about and explore. Um, so I just wanna kind of emphasize that, that my upbringing was one where thinking was valued uh, then later in high school, I began to sort of think beyond the edges of what I'd seen in my community, and this led me to um, just not know what to think about Christianity, even about the existence of God, so I became agnostic. And then after that, it was just from further exploration and study that brought me into a vision of reality that was greater than... Yeah, which isn't surprising. I mean, reality is, of course, greater than any limited person sees. And so I saw a greater vision of reality and an understanding of um, God's existence and the foundation of existence that just made a lot more sense to me. And that's kind of what got me more into the field of philosophy. But that's maybe a little bit more than what you're asking, but it kind of, I think, helps to kind of fill out a little bit of that background. It wasn't, in my case, it wasn't that I was sort of raised as a non-Christian and then found my way into it. I was raised in that framework. And to be honest, because of that, there is a certain kind of maybe worry that some people might have and maybe, well, I would have too, which is that, is my current view of the world motivated by my upbringing rather than based on really seeing what's true about the world? And I think for that very reason, I personally feel like I have almost like a higher, um, I have a higher responsibility to really look at things from the outside. And that, by the way, that's that stage of agnosticism really helped me to see, okay, this is what it looks like from the outside. It seemed like after that, I was able to relate to people who would be skeptical of Christianity in a way that they would feel understood. Right. Um, and so that was kind of important, I think for me.
0: Um, I do find it not unique or not wholly unique that, uh, in the Christian household, you were, you said uh, that just thinking and thinking critically was a virtue. Um, I'm not going to say that's unique, but that is something that a lot of people have uh, complained about, I suppose, in the past, that uh, being brought up in the Christian home is really um, dogmatic, and dogmatic in the sense that you're not taught to uh, critically think. You're taught to just take it on faith, like you were saying, was not the case for you um, yeah. It wasn't really the case for me either, though there were those influences when I would ask questions and maybe a Sunday school teacher or somebody would say, you just got to have faith. But uh, yeah, my parents were, uh, they would be honest if they didn't know something. And it's not like I was being taught, you know, anti-science or something like that. It's stood out. But uh, I don't know.
1: If I, if I can ask, just to kind of yeah. play off this a little bit, like sure. had you ever had an experience where there's some questions. That might sort of feel dangerous to your community. Oh, like maybe it's okay to ask the question, but like if you actually start to believe some of those things, like that would that would be kind of dangerous. Sort of a feeling of danger. You shouldn't go there.
0: I, I want to say yes. I'm trying to think of particular. Uh, not not in my home. Um, yeah. Uh, my parents were very much think for yourself. We want you to be your own individual. We set up yeah. boundaries to keep you safe, not safe intellectually, but physically safe. Uh, but yeah. uh, as far as that goes, you know. Ex- Um, explore whatever you want and be your own person. Uh, But in my, I was raised in a very uh, conservative uh, Southern Baptist church, which I love and I love all the people there. I'm not dogging on them. I'm just saying um, there, there was a whole, we don't, we may not talk about this or, Mm -hmm. or as far as we're going to talk about it, we're going to shut it down really quick. Yeah. Uh, We're going to bring it up and then just tear it down real quick. And the tear down would be that's liberalism. And so we're not going there. Or something like yeah. that. Yeah.
1: Um, or. That's what I mean. Yeah. There's yeah. kind of like a fence, and then there's a danger uh-huh. there. Like, don't go over there.
0: You can you can ask the question, but yeah. we're gonna shoot it down real quick. And if you have follow up questions, be quiet. <laughs> or not be necessarily be quiet because these yeah. I'm talking about nice people, very nice people.
1: Uh, but, well, and I understand that that doesn't characterize everybody in that culture. What I've noticed is that every single culture has a mix of, you know, some people are are kind of maintaining the territory. Mm-hmm. and there's there's some value in that. And then some people are kind of exploring the edges, and there's value in that. And so there are these, I, I've just noticed this shows up in like every context mm-hmm. if you're talking about debates between the left and the right or yeah, between yeah. atheism and theism. And then you get the you wild You always card. find this sort of pattern.
0: <laughs> and then you get the wild yeah. card who just runs as fast as he can through everything like me. And that's basically yeah, what yeah. Yeah, basically what happened as, uh, in seminary at a Southern Baptist seminary, which again, I love, did my degree there. I'm very thankful for it. Um, I realized that there were, um, dang, I just had a good way of putting it, and now I don't, but basically there were uh, certain assumptions being Mm -hmm. made that were not being explored, not being encouraged to explore um, because that's liberalism or that's, you know, (laughs) whatever. And so that's what led me first to doubt, and then from doubt led me to apologetics like everybody else that's in this area or specifically led me to philosophy. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of how it went for me was I was, not oh, I was going to say, uh, I was realizing that I'm only learning about certain positions from people who don't hold them, uh, specifically atheism. So um, mm-hmm. I'm learning about atheism from non-atheists, and it just kind of mm-hmm. clicked on me. Uh, that's probably not the best way to learn about atheism. If you want to learn about it, you should read atheists. Yeah. That's what was not encouraged. To not, yeah. to not do that, and if as soon as you tell me contrary and just my personality, don't do that, <laughs> like out of an ease, yeah. I'm gonna be like, uh, I'm gonna do that, probably just because yeah. you told me not to do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, 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 that's not a virtue. I'm just saying that's me, and so that's what yeah. I did. That's what I did. I started reading atheist literature, and then I was like, oh crap, uh, what if, what if they're right? They may, they have some points here. Yeah. And so that was my break from, uh that kind of thinking into a more humble, critical thinking. So yeah, I think, I think, and of course it's kind of contradictory to say, I think uh, that it's humility, like I'm bragging about humility, but I think philosophy for me mm-hmm. created a much more humble position.
1: But, yeah. Yeah. Once you've kind of moved across enough fences and you start to see how different people can be reasonable from their, Right. viewpoint and they, they don't really even fit the stereotypes that are cast upon them from people from other places from other fences and then what I found is that once you've kind of moved through enough playgrounds um, when you're in a playground people will even sort of cast that stereotype upon you even if you can come back right. into the other playground uh-huh. and then so it's because yeah. there's not as many people who are running around across the right. different um, yeah, the, the different playgrounds yeah and that, so that's something I've noticed. Uh-huh. Yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I'm just saying that was kind of a, I followed your analogy, but for the audience, I think what you meant was uh, if you do kind of what I've done, even if, or what you've done, once you come, even if you end up where you started, say Christianity, um, you're, you're, you are you're might now get those things leveled against you, which are leveled against atheists by other Christians. Is that yeah. what you're saying?
1: Yeah, and by atheists as well, because there's the stereotype mm-hmm. there that you're not a critical thinker. Right. Um, so you know you couldn't be somebody who's actually exploring and really seeking to understand. Um, you're sort of fenced in by your ideology, and and often like coming back doesn't mean coming fully back. It means you've right. come back to something bigger right. that has some intersection with what with the core. Mm-hmm. Um, and with even even more than that, there's filling out of details as well. Yeah. I wanted just to insert in here you you were saying that liberalism was sort of the Kind of the bad the thing bar- in in
0: right. the world, yeah,
1: the, yeah, in the world that I'm in, in the academic world, conservatism is the boundary. Uh-huh. Yeah. If if you have flag anything that might suggest that you're in that camp, it's then the bo- that's a, a red flag. <laughs> it's what
0: I've heard. Uh, Leighton Flowers called the boogeyman fallacy, and I'm I'm not saying he coined that term. I just remember hearing him say it, the boogeyman fallacy.
1: Uh, it's it, how we think, you know. Yeah. We are social creatures, you <laughs> know. We can't hardly help it. Yeah,
0: I think there's probably something I don't know what it is psychologically whatever it might be, that there has to be some kind of boundary marker for whatever reason there has to be. Yeah,
1: we need our Pokemon. Yeah, we need Uh the enemy. It sort of orients. It gets our focus, gets our energy going. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's hard to really think about these abstract things. These things are so foundational. I've often wondered, like, maybe even God sort of plays a role in the design of the whole universe to sort of fine tune the different cultures so that there's the right kind of uh, motivation and interest based around sort of heroism and courage to get to truths that really matter. Yeah. But then you sort of need, it gets complex, you know. Because, it does. Yeah. But it is oh, interesting. On every side. Yeah. yeah. There's
0: definitely something there. Well, we could have a whole episode on that. All right. Uh, let's, let's, uh, uh, but I do appreciate you bringing it up because it is interesting. Um, but let's bring up the contingency argument. Yep. Um, this is something that you've discussed quite a bit online, at least, and in your uh, written liter- literature as well. Yeah. Um, so let's start with kind of what is not the formulation, but just kind of what's the general idea of a contingency argument and what's kind of like a brief history of it? Where does it come from?
1: Yeah, so it's an argument for an explanation of contingent things. These are things like iPhones or my own existence that can fail to be. Their existence, their their inclusion within reality isn't a matter of necessity. And the contingent argument seeks to explain the contingent things in terms ultimately of a supreme thing. Um, As far as history, I mean, really from the beginning of recorded history, you have this Plato had a form of a argument from cause and effect or cosmological argument and then Aristotle and um, Thomas Aquinas. A lot of people think of Thomas Aquinas when they think of this argument, but a lot of his stuff comes from Aristotle Mm -hmm. in his argument for motion and really kind of drawing out, you know, what is motion? Motion is a type of change. What is change? It's an actualization of a potential. What is a potential? Potential is something that is contingently actual. Um, and so um, so you have sort of these great historical thinkers developing the argument. And one way I, I've kind of thought about it is like there's this core idea that philosophers have been working on and developing in details from kind of the beginning of recorded history. And people have been thinking about this. And then in the last um, century, and really the last 50 years, that's the freshest in my own mind. Um, there's been developments of the argument that make it more precise and show how to articulate it in contemporary logic. Um, the turn of the century since um, year 2000, even a little bit slightly before. There's some hints of this in the 1970s, a few hint, hint articles that hint at this. There was a kind of modal version of the argument from contingency, an argument from possibility, modal having to do with possibility. So all that to say, uh, actually, just a little caveat, sure. even Duns Scotus, so this is before the last 50 years, he also kind of had, had a modal version, so I really should, shouldn't should say it was completely invented just in the last um, right. 20 years or so, but it's been articulated in the contemporary logic of possibility, uh, and that's an interesting development. But all of this is just developing... A core idea that's been seen throughout history that makes sense
0: yeah so because you brought it up what do you think of um the way thomas aquinas puts things so he seems to be making a contingency argument uh in his distinction between existence and essence argument yeah Um, that's kind of what i gathered from the first time i uh, read about uh, Aquinas's distinction between existence and essence, it which um, seems to be an explanation of what a contingent thing is. A contingent thing is something whose existence and essence are distinct, and then uh, a necessary being like God is going to be uh, a being whose existence and essence are uh, one and the same, or more precisely, probably uh, a being whose essence just is existence. Uh, what do you? Yes, what do you think about that, the way that's... he puts it?
1: That's loading in uh, more than is necessary for the argument. Um, so, yeah, he has this distinction between existence and essence, or essay, E S S E, and essentia, the act of existing and the sort of the nature of the thing. Uh, I remember reading a long time ago this, sort of the distinction between that it is versus what it is. Yeah. Um, and so there, there's sort of this argument that God and God that collapses. So, that God is and what God is is numerically the same. Mm-hmm. There is no real distinction there. Um, well, contemporary philosophers, they aren't thinking of contingency that way. They're thinking of contingency as just anything, uh, contingent thing is anything that can fail to be, doesn't have to exist. And you might argue that anything that's distinct from its existence is also, right. I want to say, it's so, so facto contingent, <laughs> in virtue of that fact contingent. Um, but that's going to require a further argument and that, and that's more than is necessary for the argument from contingency. And e- even I myself, am not sure of that. That's something I've been thinking about more recently. I'm sort of a long time skeptic actually of that idea, but, um, it's, it's been growing on me. So I just want to emphasize, you don't need that. You don't need to make that distinction. You could, for example, just to make this a little more concrete, you could think that God, um, his existence is distinct from his nature. But God is a necessarily existing foundation for all contingent things. And he's supreme. He's got a supreme nature, um, and his supreme nature is distinct from his active existence. You could think that. I mean, that's a conceptual possibility. So that's not required uh, for the argument.
0: Right. So you tend to think of—as I was going to be one of the questions, is uh, how, how do we define yeah. our terms here? But uh, so yeah. you, you define a contingent thing as something which could fail to exist. Yeah. And then a necessary thing is going to be something which could not fail to exist.
1: That's right. Yeah, and that's the contemporary usage of the term. And like I said, it might be that after further argumentation, Mm -hmm. I mean, there are interesting arguments, you know, that one could draw this out, but just not required for the argument. Right.
0: So, yeah, with respect to Aquinas, then I think what you're saying is uh, it could be the case that something— Uh, it could be the case that contingent things can fail to exist because their existence and essence are separate. But it's not necessary to make that point because contemporary philosophers are fine with just saying it can fail to exist.
1: Yeah, exactly. there's no reason to
0: do more work.
1: That's well put. (laughs) Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay, I like that. Um, Because it means, yeah, that Aquinas could be right. I like it when Aquinas is right, I'm not going to lie. But uh, it doesn't Yeah, he could be right. Yeah, the
1: way I think about it, there's many roads to truth. Right. You know, I, yeah. it's the abundance of riches. And so I think sometimes people make the mistake of trying to show that all other riches are actually fool's right. gold. So you can look at my riches. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that here. Um, I just want to separate the riches and say, yeah, you can have those too, perhaps, but they're not necessary to get this argument going. Is
0: it universal in contemporary philosophy that these are accurate descriptions of reality, a contingency and necessary?
1: Um, that my definitions are the definitions – that are universally used, or what? do you mean? Uh, do you I mean?
0: mean, does anybody object to this idea? Just uh, defining things this way, um, or you were no. saying this is how contemporary philosophers use it today? I was wondering, does anybody else do anything differently?
1: I've not seen that. No, uh, uh, it's just a question. I don't yeah. know anything. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah, curious. I've not seen that. You know, personally, I've not seen that. If if some, you know, I've written a few books on this. I've talked to a lot of philosophers. But that doesn't mean I've seen everything. So, yeah. you know, if somebody sees something that I haven't seen, you know, send me an email. Let me know. I, have, I haven't <laughs> seen that.
0: No, it wasn't coming from a I know something. It was, no, yeah. It's it come from. Kim
1: no, and Kim. my response is just like, I, you know, I want to be as honest in my response as I can be. So, no,
0: yeah, you're good. Uh,
1: because uh, it actually does bother me when people kind of come across with more authority than they actually see one of my core values. Yeah. And this is maybe more important than the, the arguments are important, but some of these sort of underlying values, I think are more powerful than the arguments themselves. Because this is how you really get to truth, this is how you really build the arguments in good ways that are helpful. One of my core values is to not say more than I see, and not say less than I see either.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So that's where that comes from.
0: That's good. Okay, so how would you formulate the argument, say in like uh, premises leading to a conclusion?
1: Yeah, so it's funny. I actually don't have a canonical formulation. It seems like I always give a different formulation every time. That's this fun. maybe shows the sort of explorer in me. Yeah. Um, but one formulation I like would be, actually, here, here's a new one. I was just thinking about this one yesterday. I thought this might be kind of an intuitive way of formulating it. Um, so let's just try this. Uh, the universe is contingent. Whatever is contingent is a cause. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Right. That would be sort of a stage one, and then stage two would be, uh whatever would cause the universe would be god therefore god is the cause of the universe yeah so that's a nice kind of simple way of putting it then we mm-hmm. can look at each premise right
0: yeah so let's start with number 1 uh which was the the universe was that the universe is contingent
1: yeah okay so sure. here i was thinking we could just define the universe as um well actually let me be careful here um yeah, let's, let's do this. So let's say the universe is the totality of contingent things and or even a plurality of contingent things. So we don't have to assume that the universe is a thing in its own right, but it is just all the contingent things together. Mm-hmm. And now there, this gets into to definition and we can take different paths depending on how we want to define things. But um, maybe for simplicity, we'll go like this. We'll say that we'll just stipulate that uh, that that the universe is, is like a set in the following sense. A set is defined by its members. So if you have a set one, two, three, and then you have a set one, two, those aren't the same sets because they have different members. So if the universe is the set of the contingent things, then if the universe changes with respect to one contingent thing, then you've got a different set. So technically you've got a different universe. Okay, on this definition, the universe is contingent if any of its members are contingent because it's defined by its members. And so if uh, anything is contingent, if anything can fail to be, like I have a certain thought in my mind and then it ceases to be, that thought's now gone. So that thought was contingent. So it looks like there's at least one contingent thing, the thought that I just had. Um, and so if the universe then is defined by its members, it doesn't have to have its members uh, as contingent members or for the universe is contingent. Now, that that would be one way of going. Another way, if you don't like that way of defining things, you might think that the universe can still exist even if it changes its members. And so then to argue for the contingency of the universe would involve a kind of subtraction argument that as you subtract contingent things, that never forces some other contingent thing to come into being. The removal of something doesn't force something else to come into being. So you could sort of subtract out all the contingent things. This would be at least in principle possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this would lead you, leave you with the possibility of no universe, which is enough to show the universe is contingent. Because again, just to be very clear for the audience, to be contingent means that it's possible to be non-existent, can fail to be. So if the universe um, can fail to be, then the universe is contingent.
0: Okay. How does... That makes, yeah, No, uh, it does. Um, how does the uh, argument for the contingency of the universe not commit the... A fallacy
1: of fallacy op- composition. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Okay. So, you know, it's very interesting because sometimes, I was thinking this morning during my jog, actually, that people will use terms like fallacy. That argument is a fallacy uh, or commits a fallacy in ways I think are, are actually really unhelpful. And, and professional philosophers tend not to do this. I actually find this more in the popular sphere. Um, it, it, it's unhelpful because usually what's going on is not that there is a kind of simple mistake, but there, there is a pattern of reasoning that um, doesn't follow another pattern of reasoning. Right. So, so let, let me draw this out a little bit. So um, the fallacy of composition is the fallacy of inferring that the whole has the properties of its parts just because it's a whole. So for example, you say that the whole of all of the um, particles that make up a table, those particles are themselves tables because the whole is a table. Well, that's a fallacy. You, know, you can't infer that you know if, if, if the particles are non-tables and the whole is a non-table, that doesn't work. Okay? So you might think that that's the, the sort of pattern of thinking here if you think that, well, each part of the universe is contingent, therefore the whole is contingent. Um, because I'm using this inference, the, the underlying assumption is that I'm, I'm assuming that necessarily holes inherit the properties of the parts. Okay. My response to this is that that wasn't the inference that wasn't the assumption that i was using to make my argument so i didn't assume that the whole has all the properties of parts the whole inherits properties of parts therefore the contingent universe the universe is contingent if any of the parts are contingent that wasn't my argument instead my argument i gave two arguments depending on definitions um but the second argument there i gave was a subtraction argument it was another principle that removing contingent things doesn't force Something else, removing things doesn't force other things to come into being. And, um, you know, if, if you think there's a kind of underlying energy that can't be created or destroyed, then you might think that underlying energy is necessary, necessarily existent. It's not actually contingent. We'll have to look at that later when we look at the nature of a necessary foundation. But if it's actually contingent, it's actually contingent, then by its own definition, there's no problem with removing it from reality, okay, by definition, and the principle was the subtraction argument that you could subtract out, at least in possibility, all these things that can be removed, and that would lead to the totality being removed. I sort of think of it like, in this case, um, the contingency of the whole does inherit the contingency of the parts in the sort of the way that the brownness of a floor inherits the brownness of its parts. Right. Um, so there are cases where the whole inherits the properties of the parts, and so you have to look at those cases and see why the, why it works in those cases. So I'm not assuming the sort of general inference from parts to whole. Right. And so I think it's good for me to kind of go into detail on that, a little bit of detail, because this this comes up a lot mm-hmm. in sort of academic yeah, contexts. Yeah, it becomes kind of a stumbling block.
0: It's also not always a fallacy. Um, for example it is a fallacy if you want to say uh, every wall and or every brick in the wall weighs 2 pounds therefore the the wall weighs 2 pounds uh, that would be a fallacy um, but if every brick in the wall is red then the wall is going to be red so it's not That's right. always yeah. and, a fallacy
1: yeah the whole sometimes does inherit yeah, the, the features properties. of the parts yeah. and and sometimes you can actually see that it does mm-hmm. in the case of the redness you can actually see that and i think in the case of contingency there's a good argument for it as well. Yeah. So, nice point, yeah. Um,
0: the next point was things that are contingent have causes, is that what it was?
1: The next premise was, yeah, the contingent things have, have a cause. Uh, so the universe is contingent, whatever contingent has a cause. And here, just very quickly, just pointing to two reasons. One reason would be from universal experience. <laughs> uh, you, know, you don't experience uncaused, contingent things, and the way I like to put it is like the best explanation of our observations is the simplest one. And the simplest one that I can think of here is just that contingent things have causes. Right. That explains our observation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just an observation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I like to tell the story we used to have cockroaches in our house. They just came out of the bathrooms and they were big. And my kids, one of my small kids who was too small to be afraid of bugs, was like picking up one of the bugs and just playing with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was just so nasty. And so one of the things that we did was we barricaded the entrances, um, and that solved the problem because the cockroaches couldn't come into existence. But I remember like at nighttime going under the sheets, you know, just in case I don't want bugs getting into me (laughs) while I'm sleeping, you know, so like barricading the sheets, I'm protected. But of course I could never protect myself from the place of non-being, right? Right. Because maybe the broaches from the land of imagination, the land of non-being, they could just pop into being from nothing. I wasn't worried about that from universal experience, you know, not just roaches, any, anything. Anything. Uh, There's no exception.
0: So Elizabeth Anscombe, I think, uh, philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe has a really good response. She's specifically responding to Hume. But how would you know, you know, which is you could put it in the form of a question, which is how would you know that something popped into existence and did not teleport from somewhere really quickly that you don't know where it came from? Because that is what we would actually assume anyway. If something yeah. did pop into existence right here in front of me, I wouldn't. Actually, my first thought would be, it would actually wouldn't be that I'm hallucinating. I don't do drugs, and there's not a gas leak, but it it would be that uh, somebody was playing a trick on me somehow. But uh, and then I would assume that it teleported somehow through some yeah. quantum physics that I don't understand. And yeah, uh, I don't actually see that I as it. an
1: objection. I, I think that's just another way of confirming that you know not only don't we see this, but maybe we even couldn't. see an exception to this that's not a problem i mean this reminds me of the um this sort of so called falsification principle it's like it can't be true you can't believe that it's actually true unless you can falsify it well okay but i mean you can't falsify that two plus two equals four that's not a reason to think that two plus two is not equal to four or even that you don't don't have good reason to think it does equal four so my answer is to say this argument from universal experience supports the principle and merely it it having no ability to disconfirm the principle doesn't disconfirm the principle yeah. and doesn't undercut our evidence for the principle oh, either. Oh yeah,
0: so I was not trying to bring up a hypothetical objection of the falsification principle. I was just pointing out. No, I know. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: I think that her her famous objection, as it's articulated here, um, doesn't undermine the mm-hmm. uh, sort right. of argument from experience. Right. That's yeah. my. That's all I'm saying. Oh, okay. and it, yeah. It, her objection is a famous one, but it doesn't undermine this mm-hmm. this argument.
0: So, um, let's see. So, that was premise two, premise three. So, I, I don't think that, um, I just want to skip straight to this. I don't think a lot of people are going to object to the idea that there must be something which is necessary. I think, would you agree with that?
1: Oh, well, this is interesting. I think there's been some shift, maybe recently. Um, in kind of my earlier days talking about this, that was where all the action was. You know, and I, mean, I remember talking in graduate school with, with a graduate student. He said that he thought that um, let me separate the cases in my mind, different conversations. Um, if, if there were a necessary thing, it wouldn't you know, would be a material thing. And the action has been sort of focused on that. I mean, William Rowe, in his book, 1975, update 1997, on the cosmological argument, um, he focuses on the argument for a necessary thing, and he kind of closes the book by teasing out these divine properties. So it's like, Material things wouldn't be necessary couldn't be an ultimate cause so kind of in the history of the argument that as far as I've read it seems like no all the action has been toward being skeptical of a necessary cause of the universe Um, but more recently things seem to be shifting I mean you have people like Graham Oppie
0: that's what I was gonna bring up
1: a famous naturalist philosopher atheist philosopher and, um, and he's moved along towards thinking that there's a necessary thing for various reasons. And so it's almost like because, you know, it's sort of that we're social creatures thing, because some of the sort of leading thinkers who aren't theists are taking on board a necessary thing. Um, it's almost like now the kind of the dialectical game has shifted a little bit. Yeah, um, I mean,
0: he, Graham must be the leading atheistic philosopher. I mean, to my mind, he is, I don't know. But uh, um, as far as in popularity, and he's also very obviously good, I mean, it in both senses. Uh, but I think, and, and you know it much better than I do, I think he's uh, comfortable with, say, physical simples, or something mm-hmm. along those lines. Is that right?
1: Or a physical starting point.
0: Right. So there, yeah. there, there may be a necessary uh, ground of existence, but it's gonna be physical. Yeah. What do you, how do you respond to that? Um, Yeah, let me just,
1: just to point to, just to kind of complete the supports for the causal premise, and I'm I'm not gonna go into detail, but there's also just this argument from intuition, or reason, where, wholly apart from experience, you know, some things just sort of seem intuitive, and if you just think about a object just existing, your mind might sort of call for an explanation. And you might think sort of one kind of explanation is that it's got a cause. And another kind of explanation is that, well, it can't not be there. Mm-hmm. So it exists because it's necessary. But if it's not necessary, then it's contingent. So to explain it, it's got to have a cause. Yeah. So I wanted just to point that in there, that there's also that kind of support. Um, yeah. And then as far as Graham well, so this question about the nature of the foundational Item leads us to stage two. So this is the final premise. Then, in, in the argument I gave, if the cause of the universe, uh, if there's a cause of the universe, then that cause is God. Right. And there are many different arguments. My sort of signature argument at this point would be sort of this argument from arbitrary limits. And it's interesting because um, I'll go into it. But it's it's interesting because Graham Oppy, last conversation I had with him at the end of the conversation, he said that he wanted to think more about that the the um, issue of arbitrary limits and boundaries um, at the foundation of things. So the argument, just very briefly, is that the foundational thing, okay, because it's foundational, is not going to have sort of further causes or explanations that explain its existence or its basic features. So if it has some basic features, let's say, that are contingent, but, but let's say contingent features have a further explanation, then you have a contradiction. because. Let me make sure this is clear. Yeah, try. Again. If it's basic, if it's basic <laughs> feature, so I think it'll help to use concreteness. Sure. Um, one of the um, one of the things I've come to realize is that people uh, are able to understand things better when they're they're concrete. So imagine you have a turtle at the foundation of existence. Let's say this turtle, for whatever reason, ha- has five legs. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's got five legs, and you wonder, like, why does fundamental reality have a turtle? Well, there can't be an explanation because this is fundamental reality. You say, well, why does it have five legs? Why not four legs? Why not three legs? Well, let's say that those features, its legs, are fundamental features of fundamental reality. Okay, then by definition, it can't have a further explanation because it's fundamental. Mm -hmm. But if having three legs or having four legs is a contingent state, then by the causal premise, contingent states have a further cause, by the causal premise, um, there is a further cause of its legs. So the contradiction is that those legs are fundamental, there is no further cause, but they're contingent, so there is a further cause. Mm -hmm. Now why I think they're contingent, well this is where my signature comes in, it's that um, the difference between numbers of legs And the difference between a turtle that exists in our day and a turtle that exists at the foundation of reality, differences in numbers of legs and locations of time are arbitrary differences in degrees of limitation, degrees of location. And these arbitrary limits don't make a difference with respect to being contingent or being caused.
0: So the analogy Uh, here is going to be physical things in our day and time are contingent. So yeah. to suggest that a physical thing at, say, the beginning of time is necessary is an arbitrary distinction that perhaps— That's people, a good way to put it. Yeah, merely because, changing the time. Yeah, right, because yeah. everything in the present that is physical is contingent. It would seem to be a, a necessary feature or an essential feature of physical things that they be contingent.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think some people might think, well, the of first like moment that, of time— but, well, yeah. Well, the difference in location of time, I mean, you know, it's not like things on Wednesdays become necessary. Things on Tuesdays are contingent. You know, they, they doesn't, changing the time doesn't make a difference. Now, somebody who's listening to this, they, they might be thinking, well, wait, the first moment of time is special because we know there can't be something that caused the first moment of time. That's what makes it special. OK, that's right. It is special. But the question is, what kind of a thing could exist without a cause? Right. So if, if there is a first moment or if there is a foundational element What kind of a thing could that be? And the thought here is that merely changing the location of time is not enough to explain it's different, its ability to be uncaused. In fact, the very firstness of its location is just calling out for its needing to have some relevant difference to account for how it could be first.
0: Hmm. Maybe it actually doesn't have to do with being time and location or even size, but, yeah. but the visibility, isn't that the idea of a physical simple is that it cannot be reduced further?
1: So that, I think, could actually help. Being simple could help. So th- this is kind of the neat thing. It's like the, the more features that it has that resemble a supreme nature, right. the more we, we're removing the need for an explanation. Right. So you might think, you know, one reason for having an explanation is that it's complex. So, it's, so it needs to have, be explained in terms of something else. So once we get to something simple, then you remove the need for it to be explained in virtue of its complexity. But let's say it's simple and shapes like a turtle. Right. Well now we need a need for explaining that shape. Why does that turtle shape of all the ta- shapes get to be instantiated without any cause or explanation? Right.
0: So it's, you're and getting so, into the metaphysics of it now.
1: Yeah, I think we have to shave off um, all the features that would call for explanation. So maybe simplicity doesn't call for explanation. But having that particular limited shape has calls yeah. for explanation. The difference between square and triangle is not a relevant difference with respect to having an explanation. So and so what? then you say, well, maybe it has no shape, and it's a simple, but uh, it's still physical. But it's still, physical. Yeah, it but it's still physical. physical, let's say. It, I mean, I actually talked with a philosopher, and this was um, kind of toward the end of graduate school. He's a logic professor, and and um, and so he was saying maybe the initial state is unbounded. Um, it, it doesn't have limitations in that sense. Maybe it is simple, and so you start making it more and more like God, right? Yeah. Um, and okay, well, does it have any any um, powers? Well, I think it would have powers. By power, I just mean causal power—the ability to produce an effect. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, he said, yeah, it does have powers because it's the original cause of all power. Mm-hmm. That's the source of power. Which means how much power potential. does it have? Yeah. How much power? Well, it doesn't have a limited degree of power Then we're back to the problem of having these arbitrary limits that call for further explanation. So if we shave off all the limits that call for further explanation, this unexplained ultimate thing this sort of foundational thing would then have unlimited power. So now it's simple. It's unlimited in power. It's um, unbounded. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and, and I would say that it doesn't have um, any logical limits. So I by a witness of, of my own knowledge, my own power to have knowledge, I realize that it, there's not a logical limit on power to um, not—I'm I'm putting this in sort of a clumsy way. Mm-hmm. You might have to help me with this. What I'm trying to say is that the power to know, cognitive power, mm-hmm. is built into the concept of the greatest conceivable power. And anything less than the greatest conceivable power builds in a logical limit on power. So if you're removing logical limits, if you're removing the kind of limits that call for further explanation, I think any logical limits would call for further explanation. You want to explain things as far as you can. Then the ultimate reality is going to have a maximal conceivable power, which includes cognitive power, yeah. which is a reason I would have for thinking that now it's, it's a mind. It's a maximal mind. Um, it's not a mind with arbitrary limits. It's a supreme mind.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, this was going to be the next question, and since we've already you've already um, got into a few features of yeah. the nature of this necessary being, uh, what what features? I don't know if you want to use the word properties or not. Whatever word you want to uh, use, um, can you deduce about this necessary being?
1: Yeah, so actually my recent thinking, I've actually been thinking it is maybe um, less helpful to try to deduce from necessity itself, all the properties, uh, rather than kind of use a sort of argument from shaving off the arbitrary limits and then see what there is. And then what there is, I argue, is a supreme nature. And then from there, see what you can deduce from the supreme nature. That's kind of a development in my own thinking. Um, it used to be that I would kind of first argue for necessary thing. And I even have a publication called from a necessary being to God. Um, so there is that kind of a pathway, but I mean, even that pathway requires a certain kind of causal principle that goes beyond the mere, uh, contingency principle, that contingent things have because because you've got to show that somehow this foundational thing isn't merely necessary, but it also has a supreme nature. So, um, so I, I think it's helpful to kind of think of uncovering sort of the, the, the nature of a necessary thing by shaving off its arbitrary limits then seeing that it's got to have a supreme nature. And then from there deducing the, the supreme properties like supreme power, supreme value, uh, supreme knowledge, supreme cognitive power, which I think implies supreme knowledge. Um, and so or, or supreme mind is maybe a, a more careful way of putting it kind of leaves open how much knowledge supreme mind would have there are some questions there we could leave open at this stage i don't want to rush ahead um and so then you could think of this as a hypothesis about fundamental reality that you not only sort of uncover through a pathway of reason but that also has a high degree of predictive success it like matches our experience in various ways it predicts for example that there are these supreme that, that there is a kind of moral reality because it it you know, if, if you have a supreme mind, um, then a supreme mind would have a moral dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you can even have a mind without having value. Minds have value. And then you shave off the arbitrary limits to its value. It's got supreme value. And so, you, th- so this implies a kind of moral order, a or moral character to reality. It implies that there are principles of reason. That there are laws of logic, even embedded in the nature of the foundation of reality. And this is something that uh, many philosophers independently come to, that there are these sort of abstract forms of of logic. Um, It also predicts that there are these, uh, I would say, person-building resources or or powers to build persons. And we see, lo and behold, there are persons, which implies that there were uh, person-building resources. And that's not trivial. I mean, if you just sort of imagine arbitrary random realities that you can conceive of, one reality is just a blank reality with nothing. Another one is just a simple single stone that can't produce persons. There's all sorts of alternative realities that don't have this kind of predictive success. And so theism, this kind of supreme foundation hypothesis, is to my mind the simplest hypothesis with the greatest predictive success. And uh, and so that's pretty powerful, I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna get. To, I'm gonna go uh, look at the questions we got from the live audience here in just a second. Um, If you have any questions, by the way, just tag at help me believe in the live chat and I'll address those uh, brief uh, shortly. Sorry. Um, But uh, one last question for you, uh, Dr. Josh is um, what role, well, I guess it might be helpful to say, what is the principle of sufficient reason and what role does it play in the argument from contingency and kind of how does it come up? I think it usually comes up when somebody wants to arbitrarily stop explanations uh, like we were t- talking earlier, but uh, I'll let you discuss that. I'm gonna go find us some questions in the live chat.
1: Yeah, great question. There are different forms of it, um, sort of on the strongest strongest form would be like, everything has an explanation. Um, and then there are weaker forms, like everything that's contingent has an explanation or everything that's contingent that exists has an explanation. And even that term explanation, are we looking for a sufficient explanation or just some explanation, just a partial explanation? And so some forms of the principle of sufficient reasons, the stronger forms, um I don't think are uh required for this for this argument. Um but a kind of modest form that kind of comes in is to just explain things as far as you can. Um and where at least have some explanation. Or at least have some sort of possibility of coming up with a theory that could provide an explanation. And um there's a lot here because you know different principles lead into different arguments. So they're actually different pathways. And um, I, my favorite arguments go through very modest forms of the principle um, so that skeptics of the sort of stronger principles of sufficient reason wouldn't have to be worried about the kind of pathways I offer. The pathways I offer are kind of more just embedded in how we think scientifically, seeking an explanation of, of our observations and that kind of principle of explanation, seeking in science is really all we need for the kind of argument uh, that I, I, so.
0: Very good. Got some questions uh, out of the the live audience. Uh, A liberal has appeared. Hello, Jonathan DePio. Thank you for that comment. That's a friend of mine, just being sarcastic. Uh, Let's see. Ethan Silva writes, how could this work, this being the contingency argument, if there are infinite universes or if the universe is eternal? And is same person, and is Josh a classical theist?
1: Okay. So classical theism was also variously defined. Um, if there's a kind of, um, you know, I mean, I would say, well, do, do you think I would God say that I'm, I'm at home with the general idea of, of classical theism. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's the personalist debate. It's got a person. It's got personal. I'm
0: guessing that's um, what some the these, question is behind the question, if I had yeah, to Yeah.
1: I think some of these questions, these things, are hard for me to answer because I think the way that these things get defined, um, I, you know, I'm sorry not to be more helpful, but I actually want to be just as very honest as I can be. Sure. Which means that I can't give you a clear answer to that because of the way terms get defined. Right. But and I'm and at home that
0: whole. De- that's a definitely a respectful and responsible answer because there's just there's so much on that that is. It's yeah. a
1: great question, and, and I, I really love this question about the eternality and the infinity. Of the universe because the great thing about the contingency argument is that it doesn't depend on the universe having a first moment in time i know we talked about that as a kind of model but that's not actually required for the contingency argument to work Um, if you sort of imagine let's say a big block of blue cheese okay and then you just imagine that block of blue cheese being a contingent type of thing and now you just in your imagination, change its size, increase its size all the way out so that it's infinite. All the infinity of its size is going to remove its contingency. Um, it doesn't, the, the change in size doesn't, um, it's not sufficient to explain a change in its nature. It's kind of like the blue tiles or the red bricks you mentioned. Uh, you know, if you have an infinite stack of red bricks, the infinite stack of red bricks is still in its sort of totality a red stack. And the brown tiles, if it's all the way extended out, is still red. And I want to say that this is true both across space and across time. If this blue cheese were infinitely old, that would thereby remove its need for an explanation. Richard Taylor has this famous line that you don't explain the existence of a thing merely by extending its age. The age doesn't explain its existence. And this is why William Rowe, he's got this example of an eternal star that is eternally giving off light. And in this case, it's the light that he's focused on. He's saying that light, there's always been light from all of eternity, and yet there's also always been an explanation of there being light Mm -hmm. uh, from all of eternity in terms of the star.
0: Uh, Let's see, from uh, Jonathan DePue, uh, my friend here, it says, asks, as Christians, um, how can we be sure that what we've discovered about the nature of God through arguments like this, um, coherent arguments, how can we be uh, sure that what we discover about the nature of God through your arguments coheres with the nature of God revealed concretely in Jesus Christ.
1: So we we can't be sure. Okay, I'm I'm kind of playing a little bit here. Um, That term we is a difficult word for me. I've been thinking a lot about this because I think that individuals have eyes, and I understand what it means when people say we, um, but I think it's actually really helpful to think of this individually. So I can speak from my own kind of individual perspective, and I can't give you general principles that will apply to every individual. I can't get, I can't answer it for the we. can't do it because different eyes are just different, different things. Um, but for me, when I'm thinking about sort of the connection between, let's say, special revelation and general revelation, sort of revelation through um, means of people having encounters with God and writing those down, And um, an example of this would, of course, be Christ and the revelation about Jesus of Nazareth and who he is versus a kind of general revelation through reason and reflection and nature and evidence that is more universally accessible. What I do is I just think about the data that I have as an individual mind. And I have this picture of like a scale in my mind with evidence that can weigh on one side versus another side. And I'm just looking, okay, for any particular question, how does the evidence weigh on that question? And if I see a perceived inconsistency, then that's an invitation to go deeper. The, the perceived inconsistency is a point of tension. And I think sometimes what people will do is because tension is kind of painful, we'll try to come up with a rule or a principle that protects people from having that kind of tension. So one rule would be like, you know, don't trust anything that science say if it, conflicts with the Bible. Or another rule I've seen is trust uh, what the Bible says or any religion says if it conflicts with science. Setting those rules. I think both those rules are actually unhelpful. They're unhelpful for me because I find that uh, sometimes there's tension. That tension invites me to go deeper. And what I'll find is that by going deeper, I'll see a greater picture that shows how those things can go together. And sometimes what that means is modifying my understanding of what the Bible actually says. Sometimes that means modifying my understanding. Well, I've found many times I look into the science and what's being reported that the science says is not actually what the scientific data actually shows. Mm -hmm. So Oftentimes there's a difference between what the scientists say and what the science itself says, what the actual data is. And you'll never find that out if you just have a rule that just barricades you. It says, well, don't believe the scientists or don't believe the Bible. Uh, So I find it's like way more helpful just to take responsibility for your individual eyes And face the tension head on and go into more detail. This is what I did when I had all my questions about the Bible for my dad, you know, on, on every third page. And instead of just, you know, getting simple answers, I went deeper. And the result of that was an expansion of understanding. And, you know, that's the only way you can get out of a prison that changed your mind to a limiting belief. Because what if the Bible isn't accurate? What if it isn't true? Then, you know, you want to actually be able to see that. And you want to be able to see that in principle. And so, you know, have the courage really to just test everything out, all the way out as far as you can. And not be afraid of inconsistencies, but let them be invitations to go deeper. Yeah. So I know that's a long answer, but there's kind of a lot there. I'm really passionate about some of these principles behind sure. that answer. Sure. So That's why yeah. I wanted to go into that detail. Yeah. No.
0: Uh, I know where Jonathan's coming from on his question. I want to get to other questions, so I can't, uh, yeah. unfortunately, I, I can text him about that. Uh, that's okay. It says, uh, "This is from Salem," uh, or at least that's a YouTube name. There. It says, uh, "I just finished high school, and am interested in taking philosophy in university. Uh, are there any good universities and specific fields/slash subsets of philosophy that you would suggest?" Sorry, I got tongue tied there.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, this all a long conversation about your career goals, um, and because there's a fit between the universities, obviously the University of Notre Dame is very good. Philosophy and philosophy of religion—that's uh, where I went. Um, but sometimes there can be some stepping stones uh, to some of these universities. where You get a good master's degree um, at, a, at, a, at a college or university. Um, so you know this is one of those things where I feel like a helpful answer will involve kind of more uh, kind of personalized interaction. Uh, university of Texas at Austin is a good one. Uh, they've got a good philosophy of language but again it's going to depend on kind of your your aims and your goals yeah. so sorry not to have a more helpful answer but i'd be happy to interact more personally on that question mm-hmm.
0: so i'm in uh, a master's of arts program at southern evangelical seminary which is completely online so i don't know who this person's is like you said it would depend on a number of things but yeah as far as online in philosophy goes it's very good um and it is a broadly to mystic school but mm-hmm. uh, yeah but there's a lot of good programs out there and try to think of other ma and philosophies that you could do uh i was always but be being able to do it online was what was biggest for me because i just unfortunately don't have yeah. the, the resources to to go and do it in person which is obviously preferable and since you just got out of high school you know maybe you do have those resources i'm an adult with a wife who's pregnant and things like that so i can't go do that but uh yeah, so it depends on a number of things.
1: I, I do have to add, yeah, Azusa Pacific University, where I teach, you know, we've got online programs right. as well. Put the plug excellent, excellent. Yeah, I, I mean, how could I not mention that? I mean, it's <laughs> excellent. His first rate, really. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so um, is there, a, since, since there is no canonical formulation that Dr. Rasmussen consistently cites, is there some good list of formulations available online? That'll be our last question. Formulations of the classical... uh Of the contingency argument? Are there different formulations brought together that you can find somewhere?
1: Yes, yeah, okay. So um, on my website, if you go to JoshuaLRasmussen.com, you will see um, I've got a list of articles and publications, and I have several different publications on this argument. One of them... Is just called cosmological arguments from contingency and that might be the best one another one is called the cosmological or the argument from contingency and between those two I think uh, those would probably be the most helpful Mm -hmm. that I've seen
0: okay so I'm gonna address this last question says hello brother uh, talking to me are you going to be debating an engineer atheist soon if so is there a date so yes I have agreed to debate a uh, godless engineer, uh, John Gleason is his actual name. He's a famous, eight, uh, popular, really well-known on YouTube. Uh, the subject is going to be on Jesus' mythicism. John is a Jesus mythicist, um, so he believes that Jesus um, was not a historical figure that walked the face of the earth. And uh, I want to emphasize the walk the face of the earth part because that's what I'm going to prove. It's actually this, the subject is going to be, did Paul believe in a historical Uh, Jesus, and by historical, we mean a Jesus who walked the face of the earth, Um, which I know to a lot of people is going to be odd that you have to add that in there, that that's what I have to prove, but that is the qualification. And uh, I think it's quite obvious from even a cursory reading of Paul's genuine, I'm only going to argue from his genuine seven letters. I think he obviously wrote more than that, but uh, from a critical scholarship standpoint, I'm only going to argue from those. And even from that, I think it's quite obvious that he did believe in a historical Jesus. And so that's going to be on July 23rd uh, at 7 p.m. Central Time. And it's going to be on a YouTube channel called Adherent Apologetics. I think it's a a YouTube channel that's just starting to host debates and and dialogues like that. So I am going to be participating in that. I know if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me me say that I'm not interested in doing debates. But... uh, for whatever reason, I am interested in doing this one, so I am gonna do it. Uh, So yeah, that's that. But um, Dr. Rasmussen, thanks so much for joining me, sir. I really appreciate it. Enjoyed the the conversation with you and uh, we'll definitely have to have you back on sometime uh, real quickly. Again, don't forget uh, in the description below, you'll find links to uh, Dr. Rasmussen's website as well as his books. You should check those out, get a hold of them. Uh, It's really good stuff. And again, if you want to watch the bonus segment, five more minutes with Dr. Josh Rasmussen, as well as all of our other bonus segments, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter. Dr. Josh, uh, thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you.